Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Alice Hearing, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we talk about the surrender and evacuation of Ukrainian soldiers in Mariupol's Azovstal steel plant and what will happen to them in the coming days. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 18th of May, day 84. And today, I'm joined by The Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, and assistant foreign editor, Katie O'Neill. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine. Hi, Alice. Hi, everybody. So the last 24 hours, it's been fairly quiet across the the theatre of Ukraine. There's been some small tactical advances by Russia in the in the Donbass. This this continues the uh, the move of late. Now they've not yet been able to get over that river. They they got uh, very badly mauled on a few days ago, but they are making incremental advances in the villages around there, around that uh, the Severodonetsk pocket, um, and. Uh, and and they are they are adding up. So I mean they're, they're assessed to be moving at about a kilometre or two kilometres a day. But we've been saying that now for the best part of ten days, if not two weeks. So I mean a much slower rate of advance than they would hope for, and it's costing them very very dearly for every mile that they gain. But they are making slow advances in in that middle pocket. We should just pause actually and and say, I mean what what would Putin think of that? I mean he doesn't care about the cost to his own people let alone ukrainian fighters and civilians so i think he would be he would be reasonably content by that so even though russia is making uh, well suffering huge operational um, defeats at the hands of ukraine they've been shoved out of the north around kharkiv then um, i don't think putin at the moment would would see this as any any particular cause for concern Allied, of course, the big news in the last 24 hours is the, the continued removal of, of Ukrainian fighters from the Azovstal plant. So the Russian Defense Ministry says that in the last 24 hours, another 694 Ukrainian fighters have surrendered. That takes the total, according to the Russian Defense Ministry, we must, we must highlight. But they say the total is now up to 959, including 80 injured uh, since Monday. Um, negotiations over a potential prisoner exchange, which the reasons I, I said yesterday, I don't, I don't think is going to happen in the short term. Uh, but negotiations are going on. Possibly there's, there's a there's a, an idea that 
that maybe these fighters could be sent to Turkey or some other third country, but they, those negotiations have gone nowhere at the moment. And there's been some very bellicose language from Russia, a number of um, MPs calling for 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 what that what they're saying is that the Nazi Azov Brigade to be um, to be executed and, and so on. Um, I mean, expect more of that. Expect more of that kind of language. It, it comes as the the war crimes trial. This uh, the Russian soldiers, 21 year old Vadim uh, Shishimarin, who was accused of murdering a, a 62 year old uh, Ukrainian in the northeast of the country on February the 28th. That that trial starts today. If convicted, he he could potentially have a life sentence. So the, these two things will will probably go go hand in hand. Um, it, it, but but as I say, expect to see more such language from Moscow. Um, it would be um, they've been moved. Sorry, the, the the fighters and the wounded have been moved to to Russian-held territory within Ukraine in the separatist-held areas. So if there's if they are under the eye of the International Committee of the Red Cross and potentially the UN as well, then any move from there will be will be flagged early. But it is one to watch. And I'll just uh, take a pause there. Thank you, Dom. Um, and we'll get a bit more into Azovstal a bit later. Um, but first, Katie, do you have anything else to add on that? Any other updates that you think we should know about? Well, just a, a, a quick update on Avastol as it's come out recently in the, the past hour or so that uh, a pro-Russian separatist leader is claiming that there are still commanders left in that steelworks plant uh, in Mariupol. So the picture that had been building since the evacuation of soldiers began yesterday was that all of the fighters had left the plant. But um, the leader of the uh, pro-Russian separatist region of Donsk has claimed today that there are commanders that remain in the plant and are refusing to give up. So um, th- if that's true, the Ukrainians haven't confirmed that to be the case uh, yet today. But if that is true, it sort of leaves open the opportunity or the possibility that there might continue to be a standoff there. Uh, it's been such a, a long standoff, uh, the the fighters holding that plant for, uh, well, since the beginning of the invasion. Um, and we thought that it had come to an end and that Mariupol had been completely seized by the Russians, but um, leaving the possibility open there today that uh, there might still be some commanders holding out and refusing to give up. Um, in terms of that war crime tribunal that Dom mentioned, that's going to come up at a, in about 45 minutes time, around 2 p.m. today uh, on Wednesday. We will see the first Russian soldier tried for uh, war crimes uh, since the beginning of the invasion. Uh, he's also being tried for premeditated murder. We don't know how he's going to plead at the moment, but um, it's obviously uh, going to set a precedent for how the rest of the war crime prosecutions proceed from here. Ukraine's top prosecutor is investigating something like 10,700 potential war crimes and I think something like 600 uh, war criminals. So uh, this is... is uh, the first that we're seeing in that, a lot of those soldiers we expect to be tried in absentia. But as Dom said, this 21-year-old soldier will be at a court in Kiev today. So we'll be keeping a close eye on that. Great. Thank you so much, Katie. Um, and we also heard that one of the world's largest gene banks has been destroyed um, by fighting near, near Kharkiv. Katie, could you talk a bit more about that? Yes, yeah, so uh, an Odessa a scientific journal revealed this uh, this week The Gene Bank is the National Gene Bank of Plants of Ukraine and it's a really important uh, plant bank which uh, was in Kharkiv, the second city of Ukraine. It had 160,000 varieties of plant seeds um, 
so among the destroyed samples there that the, the whole bank has been uh, destroyed and unfortunately uh, it's been reported that among the destroyed samples are seeds that don't exist anywhere else in the world so this sort of bank stores different uh, seeds to ensure food and environmental security in the event of any sort of major disasters or um uh, you know, crops going extinct, or you know, any sort of uh, climate catastrophes. Uh, that's why this this plant uh, existed in Kharkiv. But uh, you know, despite the Ukrainians managing to liberate uh, Kharkiv uh, and and not allowing it for it to fall uh, into Russian hands, it seems that a casualty of that battle is this plant bank. One of many casualties. So let's talk about as of start at the moment. So Dom, uh, we talked a bit about this yesterday. You talked about it with uh, David. What has sort of changed since yesterday, and what was discussed yesterday? So basically, we've got to got to look at the Azovstal steel plant through through the two different lenses of Russia, Russia and Ukraine. So Russia claimed some weeks ago that the battle for Mariupol was over. They they sort of took their victory. And then after that, we had that sort of excruciating meeting, you may remember, between Putin and Shoigu, this this sort of, you know, called into the headmaster's study type thing. The body language was just appalling. It was all staged for the cameras. Um, but even so, it was just, it was awful, awful to watch the, the, the stage managed approach. But at that meeting, I'm sure you said that the, the, the battle's done and there's a few a few sort of holdouts in this in this steel plant and, and Putin said, Well never mind, you know, well done, medals all around and then seal the place down so that not even a fly can get out. Anyway, so they, they took their victory then, Russia, and since then they've been they've been pounding away trying to take the, the take the whole place. So we've yet to see how this is going to be presented to the to the Russian public because the, as I say, they've already done the we we've We've secured the, the the southern land corridor down to Crimea bit, so it'd be interesting to see now them trying to claim ah, actually no Mariupol's finally fallen we've we've done it so pro- probably not expecting a lot of that uh, type of narrative from Russia and on the Ukrainian side what was left of Mariupol um, offered no uh, no sort of military uh, preference for either side it was it was symbolic. Uh, Russia, as I say, took what symbolism they could from it a couple of weeks ago. And for Ukraine, the longer they could hold out in this, uh, what turned out to be 83-day siege, I think, 82 days yesterday when they when they surrendered, uh, on Monday, sorry. Um, I mean, the, the symbolism of this, the staunch resistance of Ukraine, this, this as I said, it will, this will go down in history for Ukraine. And it had a very real military impact as well. It at any one time, we were told by Western officials there were about nine, nine to eleven uh, battalion tactical groups from Russia, each one numbering six or seven hundred fighters, trying to attack Mariupol and the Azovstal plant. Um, that that then went down to about two or three in the last in the last couple of weeks. But even so, the ones that had been freed up, the Russian battalion tactical groups freed up, were in no in no fit state to immediately turn left, head north, and get stuck into the Donbass. I mean, they were they were exhausted. They were they were um, depleted in terms of personnel and equipment. They were out of out of ammunition, food, water, all the petrol, all lubricants, everything you need to keep a, an armoured force on the move. So the fact that the resistance managed to survive for so long was was more than just symbolism. It had a re- very real military operational effect in that it, it allowed Ukraine time to prepare in the Donbass and prepare for the north around Kharkiv. So the the battle for Mariupol, I think I think we can say it was it was hugely more um, uh, powerful 
a, a battle for Ukraine than it was for for Russia, and, and the, the the symbolism that they will take out of this resistance will will last um, you know, for, for for many many a time, and certainly throughout this war, it's just it shows the shows the steel and the resolve that um, that that is possible. Of course, we shouldn't forget that there are there are hundreds of civilians in the area and thousands in the city more widely so we, we should we should keep a very close eye on we will keep a very close eye on on what happens to them as uh russia sort of takes over the entire city but no this 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 objectively i think has been a um it's been a got to be a victory for for ukraine in the long run so can we talk a bit more about the fighters that have been taken out of Azovstal and the convoys? What happened there and what's changed, what's happened in the last 24 hours? So they've gone to two locations. The wounded have gone to a, to a hospital um, just to the about 20 k down the coast, uh, Novorozovk, uh, down to the, to the east along the coast within the separatist held area, no, not into Russia proper. The, um, the, the others, the, the uh, those non non um, non wounded have gone to gone north to Alevnica, about fifty k's up towards Donetsk itself. Quite which camps they've gone to, we don't know. What the state of those camps are, we don't know. And um, as I say, negotiations are ongoing about what happens to them thereafter. Held in 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 that area of Ukraine, moved to Russia, moved outside to a third party, a third country. Um, we don't know. However, we could just sort of zoom in for one for one moment and and think about what's actually happening for the. For the people involved, so when I was uh, in the in the British Army, I, I qualified as a as a tactical interrogator and um, a conduct after capture instructor. And a lot of what's going to be happening now for those for those mainly men. I'm not discounting there are female uh, fighters in there as well, but it's mainly mainly the men uh, who are putting up that resistance. I mean, they they will be for all their preparation, uh, all their knowledge that that. Uh, um, they were going to go into Russian captivity and possibly even a bit of relief because they thought they might die um, and and they, they have a very uncertain future, but there will be an, an element of, of relief there. But for all the time they've had to mentally prepare for going into captivity, there will still be a huge amount of pressure on them. And basically the pressure comes from two places. It's the, the self-induced pressure and then there's pressure from the, from outside, from the, from, the, from the Russians that they will seek to put on these people in order to... Um, uh, get information out of them now quite how much information they've got is is a moot point because um generally in, in a fast-flowing war such as this is any information you have that's that's um that, that, that is more than or that, that is not used up basically in the next 48 hours um is is unlikely to have any relevance whatsoever. So you you know what's happening today. You know what your your mission is. You know what you're trying to do tomorrow, really. But beyond that, the the plans from higher command of and then we'll seek to push east, or then we'll then we'll set up a defensive perimeter, and what have you. That that's all fairly wishy washy. So actually, how much tactical knowledge the, these people have got is very slim. So so any Russian interrogators hoping to get the vast Ukrainian battle plans or the, the model for the new tank or how they're flying their drones or any of that stuff out of these guys, it's, it's probably effort wasted because they just they simply won't know. Having said that, they will still ask the question. Every one of those people will go through some form of tactical questioning and in, interrogation. Um, and that, as I said, will put a huge pressure on these on these individuals. But first of all, I mean, they, in terms of self-induced pressure, they'll be thinking to themselves, did I do everything I could? Have I let my my mates down? Um, was I in any way deficient? Uh, will people think that um, that I that I didn't pull my own weight? 
Um, all these all these pressures will play on their mind, even though they will know, I'm sure, to a man that they've, they've done their best and they try their hardest. All these doubts and worries and voices will still be in, in their head. And Russia will do everything they can to exacerbate those and, and make them worse and encourage those, those self-doubts. So this system-induced pressure from the outside, um, because they entirely control the environment. So the Russians will control when these people sleep, when they eat, how much they eat, what their living conditions are, um, their access to information, so on and so forth. And of course, I'm, I'm, I'm taking it as a given that Russia is going to comply with the Geneva Conventions here and not torture and kill. Uh, I mean, it just, it, I, I, cannot, I cannot offer anything to try and explain how that, how they might even try to justify that. So I'm talking from a, from a force that will um, adhere to Geneva Conventions and, and operate within the rule of international law, basically. Um, but Russia is entirely in control here, and they will, they will seek to keep those prisoners off, um, off balance mentally. So they, they're, they're always in, that, um, in that, that what we call shock of capture, those first few moments of being, of being captured, that, that bit when you're, when you're most nervous, you're, you're unsure what's going to happen to you and your friends and your family and all the rest of it. They'll try to keep them in that state, that mental state for as long as possible, because that's when they're at their most vulnerable and most likely to, to talk and give up information. And they might do things like um, spring surprises on them. So there's this, there's this technique called dislocation of expectation. So a, a prisoner expects to be not not treated harshly, but certainly not have a have a great time of it, and expects to be fairly cold and hungry and all the rest of it. So if, for example, a prisoner is suddenly suddenly brought into a room and there's the heating's on, there's a telly on, the sofas, there's a lot of food. I mean, they're, they're suddenly thrown. That's not what they're expecting. They're their initial reaction might be to go and jump on the food and try and eat as much as they can because they're, they're hungry. But then they'll also think, well, hang on, have my have my mates had access to this? Am I am I doing one down? Am I going to be the one person who who admits that they've eaten well while everyone else is starving? And then they'll think, well, hang on, what what, what if other people have already enjoyed this largesse? And all these things will be preying on their mind. And of course, it's the interrogator who controls everything and wants to be seen by this capture uh, captive soldier. Um, as the only friend that, that that soldier has. And so that soldier will then turn, hopefully turn to the interrogator, confide in them and tr take them on, on side as a friend and, and obviously give away any military secrets they have. But it's it's all a mental game uh, if you if, if they adhere to the rule, rule of law. I mean, if it, you know, it could be physical as well if they, as we've seen, Russia is capable of, of, of horrific and dehumanised treatment. Um, but the, the, the act of interrogation is to keep, keep a... a a prisoner off balance mentally and make them dependent upon the interrogator so that they want to tell them stuff in the end or or feel like they they don't owe anything to their own side and they don't owe anything to their to their mates and their cause and their country and uh, and actually there's there's nothing wrong in giving away a little bit of information but i think i should pause there and give you give you a chance to come back at me <laughs> thank you um dom um very very interesting insight there Katie, do you agree with what Dom said a little earlier on that it really is extremely significant as a sort of individual event for Ukrainians? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the fact that they were able to hold down the steelworks for so long has been so beneficial to the Ukrainian forces. Um, they've bogged down Russian troops in Mariupol and prevented them from being uh, deployed elsewhere. Um, perhaps they're 
offensive of the Donbass would have been bolstered if these troops had been freed up from Mariupol or pardon me had yeah had been freed up from Mariupol earlier and had been able to be deployed to the Donbass and yeah you know it, it, it is the case that now the remaining soldiers that were in the steelworks plant have had to be evacuated but the fierce resistance that they put up I think has throughout the conflict so far been a, a morale boost to uh, the forces and in, in uh, the Ukrainian forces that are taking on the Russians I maybe perhaps the fact that they've had to surrender now might uh, serve as a immediate sort of um, a hit to morale but I think yeah uh, as a symbol uh, the the steelworks holdout is, is hugely symbolic and you know as as many people have commented in recent days it will go down as as perhaps you know the biggest battle uh, of the invasion and and back to you Dom what you were saying about the interrogation you said that there's a lot of these really intense uh, tactics that they'll, they'll use. But you did also imply that Russia wouldn't actually gain anything from it and Russia wouldn't get information. Uh, is, that, is that true? Uh, well, I, I doubt it very much. I, I'm not there, so I can't say, say it's true. But I would have thought that any information these guys had in their heads is, is to do with the immediate battle in Mariupol and the Azovstal plant and, and very small tactics i can't imagine they would have anything of, of, a, of a, a wider operational as in the south of ukraine or even strategic the big political idea i wouldn't have thought they'd be privy to any of that information such that they they, they uh, the, the russians might try and get it out of them or would be able to get it out of them of course the russians don't know that so they they will this is what interrogation is all about you never know what you're what you're going to find until you start asking these people questions and you, and you might have so for example i don't know who's in there but one of the ukrainian commanders might for example a few months ago have been um, before he took command of his unit he might have been on the staff in the ukrainian ministry of defense so even though that's nothing to do with his job at the moment under interrogation you might find out he, he knows he knows quite a lot about the personalities and where the power lies in the in the ministry of defense and um who has access to president Zelensky and, and what he responds to in the negotiations and so on and so forth so an interrogator's job is to find out as much information as they can for the immediate battle and then um, select those people who show uh, a promise from an interrogator's point of view that they might have more information that you could dig into later. So upon initial screening, every soldier, every captive soldier will be will be screened. The idea is to be as bland as possible, be as grey as possible. Um, turns out everyone's the chef. You know, no, one, no one's actually a fighter. No one's the intelligence officer. No one's the engineering officer and knows where the minefields are. Everybody's a chef because you want to get through that first screening and be be put into the put into the room over there where everyone just sits down and has a pretty boring time as opposed to that room over there, which is for for more interrogation. Um, and in terms of what they what they can give up and under the Geneva Conventions what they what they should give up, um, I'm not sure about Ukrainian doctrine, but in the British Army we talk about the big six. And these are the big six pieces of information, which is your name, your rank, your military number, your date of birth, your blood group, and your religion. So any questions about that? What's your name? You say your name. Uh, what what's what's your rank? You say your, your rank. Where you come from? You don't answer that. That's not one of the big six. To every other question, the soldier should reply, I cannot answer that question. And that is that is how you should approach uh, an interrogation from uh, from a captive soldier's point of view. And what we train is that as a soldier, you get these big six, you get the big six, these pieces of information about you and you put them in a box and you put that box in your in your head. And if somebody asks you a question, you, you go and look in the big, you go and look in the box in your head, and you pull out the answer. And if the answer's not in there, if it's something like, 
what unit are you from or what fuel does your tank run on or what caliber are your weapons when did the weapons arrive from america how easy is it to to fire a, a ghost drone etc cetera, etc cetera. um if the answer is not in not one of the big six it's not in that box in your head you just say i cannot answer that question and that is what a soldier should should stick to that is how you should get get through an interrogation now that doesn't bear um that 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 rapidly falls over when you hit reality because people are tired they are worn out they're exhausted they're human right they make mistakes and so what we what we train in the british army is that you should resist for as long as possible you should remember your duty remember your responsibility to the people around you um take strength and succor from your your unit identity from your mates from your family from your cause from your mission from your country and try and stay in that box keep that box in your head just don't go anywhere else and if you stray outside and you find that you've answered a question that you shouldn't have done don't beat yourself up about it because that that taps back into what i was saying earlier on about those self-induced pressures that little voice in your head saying you see you're not good enough you can't do it you can't withstand it just say to yourself okay i made a mistake and then go and climb back in that box and stick to the big six and the further you go away from the big six and you start talking and giving away information the more the interrogator gets from you now that does happen you know if you some of the american um prisoners of war in, in vietnam were there for years john mccain senator john mccain he was shot down broke his legs um over hanoi he was in the hanoi hilton in the prison there for for years i think four or five years um so to expect somebody to just answer the big six for years is is ridiculous and we as as trainers as conduct after capture instructors we accepted that and we would tell people that that is okay once you have resisted to the point of exhaustion it it is okay do not beat yourself up about it you know you need to look after yourself but the idea is and the, and this phrase came from the american experience of vietnam is that you do what you need to do to survive you look after yourself you look after your mates you look after your mission and your unit and your country and your family but you you within those within those bounds um you do what you have to do to survive and and you and this is the american expression you return with honor so if you've talked if you've if you've said some things if you've given away information then you know you don't you don't need to beat yourself up about that as long as you've not been openly collaborating with the enemy giving away what you shouldn't have um betraying your friends your family your cause your country um then it's okay you know we're not we're we you should forgive yourself but yeah if if you are unable to do that if you if you do betray your cause and your friends and your family then when you get home and it invariably is a, a when um you you'll be hounded with self-loathing and guilt for years afterwards and and so don't do that to yourself except that you've got your limits we're all human we've all got our limits but except that there comes a point when you can't take it anymore and you have to have to give a little but return with honor and and that i think is the 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 last mission that these that these fighters uh, can hold on to they 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 performed valiantly in mariupol and in the azovstal plant they held up the russians for weeks 82 days and they stopped russia being able to reinforce their push into the donbass and that was an amazing act of of military uh, skill and and uh, heroism and those guys have now got one mission left and that is to return with honor thank you don that's a very very detailed insight into what these fighters um will be going through personally in their experiences 
what do you think we will hear um, in the next couple of days from this event? What what do you think we're likely to, to know about? Um, I think it will be interesting what the Russians are going to say about Mariupol now. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, during the conversation, it was sort of the West believed or the impression that we were getting was that there weren't any soldiers left holding out in the steelworks plant now that uh, there are voices um, alluding to the fact that commanders might remain there uh, there's potential that uh, you know we'll we'll continue to see some sort of standoff at the steelworks if it doesn't transpire that there's anyone left there it'll be interesting to, to observe how the Russians behave in Mariupol. It's a city now that's now under their control, um, how the civilians of Mariupol uh, respond to them. For example, in Curzon, when uh, that was first occupied by the Russians, it was interesting, you know, the sort of uh, muted uh, but very, you know, real opposition that the locals showed to the Russian forces there. So, um, I mean, the the town of Mariupol has been so uh, you know absolutely just uh, it's beleaguered at this point and uh, it'll be interesting to see if the residents there have any sort of fight left in them or how they take to life under Russian control. Dom what do you have to say about um, what you think we'll hear uh, in the next week or so? Well I think we should pay very close attention to what messages come out of Russia now that the initial euphoria of this um, of this victory as far as Moscow is concerned is over, um, whether or not the language, this very bellicose language calling for execution and and they should all be um, you know, given the death penalty and what have you, whether or not that is tempered at all in the in the state media. Russian state media, as we know, is 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 used to trawl ideas, not for a not for our international consumption necessarily, but more for domestic consumption. So we'll keep keep an eye on that to see uh, as a as a possible bellwether. Um, but it's also just just in terms of the next few days, it's it's worth noting that Ukraine's defence minister Alexei Reznikov was in the uh, EU Foreign Affairs Council yesterday, and he gave a speech, and he was he was talking about the the the, the state of the war so far, um, and he was saying that that despite the and he was very very grateful for all the all the help that's been given. I mean, the, the, you know, we should we should make that clear. But he says that Ukraine is still massively overmatched in terms of aviation, so so helicopters. Um, armoured vehicles, multiple launch rocket systems and artillery. Um, and he he was suggesting that, well, he was asking for more, for more of those natures of equipment, but he was also suggesting that the countries in the, um, that the can't supply that might actually consider setting up a, a form of, uh, or the EU might consider setting up a trust fund whereby countries can just donate money into this fund for Ukraine to, to use to, to buy those weapons elsewhere. And very interestingly, he was talking about we're talking about three tranches of of a weapon inflow, um, short, medium, long term. You, you know, unsurprisingly, he was calling it. And so he was he, he was saying that in the short term, that's great. Just they'll take as many weapons as they can. Th- thank you very much. That's that's wonderful. And of course, humanitarian aid as well. But in the medium and longer term, he was saying that that tubes of artillery and armored vehicles, as as good as they are, they need to they need to be knitted together to work as combined arms teams. So he's basically Ukraine are, are, are metaphorically digging in for the long haul here. He's talking about building an army rather than just equipping an army. That's going to take a, a long time, but they are already trying to put the building blocks in place um, for for this for this new force in the future. How is the rest of the world reacting to this? Well, I mean, the, 
it was met with rapturous applause in the, in the uh, EU Foreign Affairs Council and lots of, yeah, we should, we should, we should take that on. I mean, there's all these, these ideas. This is a very dynamic, fluid environment, which is why we, why we're doing these, these Twitter spaces and this podcast daily, because it's just, you know, trying to do it every week. It's out of date. So things are moving very, very fast. Um, there's been no reaction in particular to, to that call from, uh, from international governments. But of course, also today in, in, in Brussels, we had the, uh, uh, the ambassadors from Finland and Sweden, the ambassadors to NATO from Finland and Sweden, formally presenting their um, th their request to join. So there are things are moving at a pace on the diplomatic front as well. So we, we will we will see in the in the very near future. Um, and of course, we're also we've all already seen Ukrainian troops in Germany and in Poland training on some of these munitions. So that, that very low level training is starting to knit together. The longer term about actually building a, a combined arms. Uh, force is, is yeah, that will take a long time but there are the seeds are already there the, the, the plan has been has been laid out uh, and these ideas are, are coming out very very fast but um no particular immediate reaction from international capitals about that idea but uh, but that, i mean there's, that's there's been no no obvious sign of of, of letting up in the uh, in the international uh, support for ukraine katie do you have anything to add uh, yeah, it's a significant moment today. It has been something that's been in the pipeline for some weeks now, but Finland and Sweden, as Dom has mentioned, have officially submitted their applications to join NATO. Um, so, you know, that's something that was very much to be expected, but those applications have gone in today. Germany's cabinet has already said that it's granted its approval for that. Uh, similarly, in Rome, uh, they are saying that, you know, we need to accelerate this process as soon as possible. Jens Stoltenberg, when he was talking about this, said that we need to provide security guarantees to Finland and Sweden now that they have sort of put themselves in a vulnerable position in signalling their intention to join uh, NATO. The main holdout there, as, as we've discussed, is going to be Turkey. Um, some people accusing Turkey and Erdogan of playing politics over this, but um, they are making noises that they are you know, not happy about the idea of Finland and Sweden accelerating to NATO, but that could potentially have to do with, um, actually they've said as much, that the part of their objection is um, this ban that was implemented on them in 2019 in purchasing some fighter jets from Washington and that was imposed after they bought some anti-missile weapons from Russia. So this can be sort of a bargaining chip for Turkey. Um, perhaps if that uh, embargo on uh, purchasing fighter jets is lifted and other weaponry, uh, it might sweeten the deal for them um, and yeah, signal their, their willingness to allow Finland and Sweden to join. Just one update on something that we discussed earlier on in the programme is this um, Russian soldier who is going to go uh, on trial today in Kiev, accused of war crimes. He has pleaded guilty. That's uh, something that's just emerging now. Thank you for that update, um, Katie. So uh, I think we'll come to the end now. Do either of you uh, have any final thoughts on the situation in Azovstal and the latest developments, including that the soldier pleaded guilty? On the soldier, it'll be interesting to see what the sentence that's laid down. I think he, that that could take a um, a whole life uh, tariff, but it'll be interesting to see what what Ukraine do about that. Uh, and in the in the immediate future, now that there are Russian prisoners, uh, sorry, Russians have taken Ukrainian prisoners of war very publicly, uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross should be allowed access to those camps and to the medical facilities. And so we would hope to uh, hope to get some statement out of them in the next few days to see what the what the conditions are and the treatment that those uh, those fighters are receiving. Casey. 
Yeah, as we've touched on, I think um, something to watch out for in the coming days is whether or not a prisoner swap is something that can be negotiated between the Ukrainians and Russians in terms of these uh, Azovstal soldiers that have surrendered from the steelworks. Obviously also keeping a close eye on whether or not anyone is remaining in those steelworks, as has been suggested by uh, pro-Russian separatists today. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Jaden Irving. <laughs>